Hey, this morning we're going to be in the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. So you want to begin to make your way there, Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front. It's going to let you know how to find 1 Thessalonians. We're also going to be in Acts and a couple other places. And then as we're making our way through, just know that the large numbers are chapters, the small numbers are verses. But we're going to spend the majority of our time in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, really just kind of two ideas come to me at once. Once I was in this Bible study in college that, for whatever reason, decided it would always be great to meet outdoors, regardless of the weather. So, in, in, in Texas is a fickle friend for outdoor time, right? And so lately we found Texas to be great uh, viewing the outdoors through a window, but occasionally it's, it's just wonderful. And, and for that hour and a half that Texas gives us, this Bible study was never scheduled. And so we, we met uh, on the porch of a restaurant, and we were back there, and it's just a crush of college students. And as we're back there, we're worshiping, and then the guy gets up to speak, and for whatever reason, I'm, I'm seated I'm, I'm seated on the ground, because there are no chairs for any of us, and I'm kind of curled up into this ball, and what I noticed really quickly is like the sweat's draining off of me everywhere. And I start thinking, I'm sure I'm sweating a lot. And the more I thought about how much I was sweating, I began to be self-conscious about how much I was sweating, and that had the opposite reaction that I would have delighted in. It meant I started sweating more. I mean, I'm pretty sure sweat was no longer running from my body, but it was just shooting out, like watering everybody around me and just drenching this whole spot. They could have found themselves, oh, look, his sweat is delightful. Isn't that nice? It's cooling us off. And so the more I thought about it, the more I sweat. Now, shame works in very much the same way. When we experience shame, what we have in the midst of this is the more we focus on shame, the more we hear the accusations of shame, the more shame we experience. I was discipling a guy a number of years ago, I guess probably 14 years ago. I mean, we'd read the Bible together, we would pray together, we'd share the gospel together. And when he was pursuing the Lord, everything was different about the way that he talked, Everything was different about the way he spent time. I mean, he was on fire for Jesus. There was no denying that. But occasionally, what he would experience is these sins that he struggled with would find themselves coming back out, and they would begin to win the battle. And when these sins would begin to win the battle, what he would hear is, you probably shouldn't pray. You probably shouldn't read your Bible. You should probably skip that lunch with Matt today. You, you certainly shouldn't tell anybody about Jesus. Because if you really loved him, if you really followed him, if you really pursued him, this wouldn't be the kind of thing you would do. And this, this really is who you are. You see, the cycle of shame communicated to him over and over again that his shame and his sin is who he was, that who he wasn't was a person forgiven by God, that who he wasn't was a child loved by God. What we read here in the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 and 2, is that as a Christian, you are not marked by shame, but by the boldness of God to accomplish his will. Let that sink in. Let that sink into your week. 
Let that sink into your life. Let that sink into the accusations that you hear. You are not marked by shame. But you are marked by the boldness of God to accomplish his will. Would you read with me in verses 1 and 2? Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Let me pray for us again. God, this morning we come into this place amidst of a mix, rather, of being self-assured, being completely broken, and being completely sold out to the lies of the enemy. So God, I pray that as Joel said earlier, that as your spirit is coming into this place, as it resides in the hearts of believers, that we would find ourselves stepping out of shame and doubt and find ourselves moving into belief and trust in you, in who you say we are, so that we might accomplish for you what you set before us. Father, we pray for those who've yet to surrender their lives to your gospel, that I pray this morning, whether it be shame or disbelief, or fear that in whatever ways they would find themselves moving out of that and trusting in Jesus. God, would you richly bless this time that we have given and set aside to the careful study of your word, and that in our study, would your Holy Spirit be making application to our lives? We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So look at how Paul opens this up. In 2, 1 through 12, Paul really essentially engages in a defense of his ministry, but he's defending his ministry on the opinions of how the Thessalonians see him. So he's, he's asking them to recall who he is and how he's been, and then base their decisions on what they're hearing about him on the person that he has led them to experience. So he goes to them simply, and he says, as you know. And what does he say? He says, brothers. He considers them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. He considers them to have had this intimate relationship and this knowledge of one another. That they are in this together. And they are aware of who he is and how he has operated. Now look, he references his coming to them. Now, what was being said about Paul is the opposite of this. In essence, that when he came there, he didn't really accomplish much. Now, Paul uses the word vain, empty. He says uh, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, this idea of vanity could really be taken three different ways. On the one hand, they could be saying that, you know, when, when Paul came and he spoke to the church here, uh, that, that really he didn't accomplish very much. He didn't, uh, just not very much was done on the basis of it. Well, we can check this. Look back at, in the book of Acts. Look back at Acts 17, 4 and 5. Paul goes into Thessalonica. He travels there. And in verses 4 and 5, it says, And some of them were persuaded, after Paul had been speaking for weeks, some of them were persuaded, they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So if they're going to make an argument on the, the fruitlessness of his engagement, that, that nothing came to be as a result of this, well, they can look around and say, well, well we know for a fact that, that Jim Bob, that he got saved under Paul's ministry, 
And we know that Beulah, nobody can do anything from her. And she's always been a reprobate and she always will be. But we know that these people came to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of Paul's ministry. So this idea of, of his ministry having been fruitless, they can say, that's unsubstantiated. We cannot believe this. Well, then the argument goes, well, you know, listen. The, the whole reason that people came to believe and trust in Jesus when Paul was here is because he was a huckster for the gospel. Essentially, Paul would walk in and he would say something in this, what well, I'm just not going to impersonate because it's going to sound like some of you or someone you've heard and loved. But what Paul would do is essentially come into this room and he would begin to describe the various wonderful attributes of the gospel, but he would, he would so completely pervert the gospel that it wouldn't accord to sound doctrine. He'd say, if you would come and love Jesus, you'll be rich. If you would come and love Jesus, you would be wealthy. If you would come and love Jesus, you would have all kinds of health. If you would come and love Jesus, your mule would never be lame. If you would come and love Jesus, all the problems of life would go away. They're saying, the reason you bought into this is because, is because Paul preached something that had no substance. We can defeat this. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere. Paul has, has communicated the gospel. They received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. These Thessalonians have become an example because Paul preached the word. He preached it in power, and he showed them, he demonstrated them to the power of the Holy Spirit. So you say there's no substance? You say there's no truth. Paul gave to them the unadulterated word of God. So they look and they say, well, it seems that this is defeated on the second level. Then they come to the third. They say, Paul was insincere. Paul was really in it for himself. Paul was really in it for this ego stroke that he got in seeing men and women come to know Jesus, that he got in having his name proclaimed. That's who Paul is. And so what Paul does in 2, 1 through 12 is issue a defense that who he has presented himself to be is who he is. And that's what we're going to see in the coming weeks, that who he has presented himself to be is who he is. Now when Paul shows up, when Paul shows up here in Thess Thessalonica, he is a man marked by the experience that he had in Philippi. Now, when I say he's marked by his experience in Philippi, he is visibly marked by the experience he had in Philippi. In Philippi, he is beaten. In Philippi, he is jailed. In Philippi, Paul bore in his body the reproach for standing for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now the assumption then is that as Paul is treated so harshly there and he's abused there and he's, he's mocked there that it, as he has these things, it is teaching him that your pattern of behavior has led to this response to you. Your pattern of behavior has led to this response to you. In essence, if there's somebody that every time you walk up and you tell them, hey, so good to see you, Amy, how are you today? And Amy just just cold cocks you, she slaps you across the face, you're going to quit going to Amy, you're going to start going to Matt, you're going to say, Matt, how are you? Because he's going to shake your hand so warmly, he's going to say, yeah, when Amy tries to slap you. 
right? She's teaching me not to greet her. She's teaching me not to engage with her because to engage with her is not safe for the right side of my face. The left side, she's never hit. But the right side of my face is not safe for me to engage with her. That's the lesson Paul has learned. When you engage, when you stand strong for the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Paul has experienced is that there is this direct tie to suffering. So I present Jesus, I suffer. I stand for Jesus, I suffer. He said when he shows up there, they see the marks of suffering on his body. Verse 2, he says, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. He suffered. Flip over to Acts 16. Flip back over to Acts. Let's look at 16 this time. I encourage you to read all of Acts 16. This gives you a, a, a better picture of why he came to be in Philippi, what he experienced while he was in Philippi. Paul is out and he's communicating the gospel. He's in the synagogues. He's doing street preaching. And along, he and Silas are walking and there is this slave girl behind him. And everywhere she followed him, she cried out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Apparently, she had a very annoying voice. I mean, it was just irritating. It's, it's uh, fingernails on a chalkboard. It's just constant. Verse 18 says, And she kept doing this for many days. Apparently, this is one of Paul's pet peeves. He hates repetition. It says, Paul, having been greatly annoyed... He's vexed, he's frustrated, he's irritated, he is angry. He turns and he said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Now when her owners see that their opportunity, their ability to make money off of this slave girl was gone, what do they do? It says they seize Paul and Silas, they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers, and when they had brought them to the magistrates, the men, the people over this city... They said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. It's the same thing we heard when he came to Thessalonica. Do you remember? The accusation was these men are turning the world upside down and they're going to do the same things here. They're no friend to Caesar. What happens? It says the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates the civil leaders, civil, mm, wrong word, the leaders of the city, they tore the garments off them and they gave orders to beat them with rods. A mob of men and women screaming, yelling, and beating them. This was their payment for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, when they had inflicted many blows upon them, They threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, and he fastened their feet in stocks. Now, at the end of this chapter, uh, end of Acts 16, you'll recognize that when they come to release Paul and Silas, Paul says, listen, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't treat me this way. You, what you have done is unlawful in your treatment of of me. You've not processed me. You've not... uh, had any type of complaint or accusation brought to me for me to be able to respond. You have just beaten me, and now you want to send me on your way. What you have done is to shame me. Now, Paul's engagement in Philippi, to be treated thus openly in this city, completely discredits who he is. 
It discredits who, he, discredits who he is. Imagine that if we were to gather out there on the plaza and we were to take one of our number and begin just to call out all the ways that they are deserving of suffering, that they are deserving of ill, that they are deserving of accusation, what would they experience? They would experience shame. They would experience the pressure. They would experience the discomfort. They would experience the isolation away from the body. This is what Paul experienced in this gathering. He experienced shame over and over again being heaped upon him. Now, in the first century, the way that you engaged with shame was just to hide from it. And so the fascinating thing is that when Paul rolls into Thessalonica, what does he do? They walk up and say, what are these whelps all over your arms and all over your face? What is this? He doesn't hide it from them. Paul is not afraid of, enga- afraid of engaging his shame. He's not afraid of engaging his story. He's not seeking to hide this from them. He says, listen, you already know that we have suffered and we have been shamefully treated at Philippi. Now, what happens when we experience shame? We experience shame on the basis of what we have done, right? And so there's some sin that you have engaged in. There's some pattern of behavior that has been true of you. There's something that you have believed. And what we experience in these moments of sin is the enemy comes alongside and he says, Jesse, this is who you are. Robert, this is who you are. Vernon, this is who you are. And he's so incredibly deceitful. Because what he says to you is, this is who you are, and this is who you will always be. On the basis of what you've done. And you experience this crushing effect of shame, keeping you stuck in your sin. Maybe for you, it's not what you've done. Maybe it's what others have done to you. So maybe you have suffered abuse from someone. So what you begin to hear is that as a recipient of abuse, someone who has been molested, someone who has been beaten, someone who has been ostracized, I have been engaged in these ways because I am deserving of this treatment. It's not something I've done, but it's just who I am. And the ways they're treating me, I deserve to be treated in these ways Because that's just the way that I've been made to be. And from shame, you move to contempt towards yourself and towards others. And you see how in that movement, you are moving further and further away from the gospel of Jesus Christ. When every opportunity in this would see you move not further and further away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to move closer to him who has borne our shame. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling the disciples now for a third time what it will be like for him to head to the cross. He says, in taking the disciples, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. So what should we know when we experience shame? You are not entering into something that your Savior has not entered into before. 
when we experience shame, you are not entering into something that your, your Savior has not already gone before. Paul David Tripp says it like this. He says, the cross is evidenced in the, that in the hands of the Redeemer, moments of apparent defeat become wonderful moments of grace and victory. The capture and death of Christ purchased for us life and freedom. The very worst thing that could happen was at the very same time the very best thing that could happen. Only God is able to do such a thing. The same God who planned that the worst thing would be the best thing is your Father. He rules over every moment in your life, and in powerful grace, he's able to do for you just what he did in redemptive history. He takes the disasters in your life, and he makes them tools of redemption. He takes your failure and employs them as tools of grace. He uses the death of the fallen world to motivate you to reach out for life. The hardest thing in your life becomes the sweetest tools of grace in his wise and loving hand. So in summary, he says, so be careful how you make sense of your life. Be careful how you evaluate your shame. Be careful how you look at your failure. He says, what looks like a disaster may be, in fact, grace. What looks like the end may be the beginning. What looks, like, what looks hopeless may be God's instrument to give you real and lasting hope. Your father is committed to taking what seems so bad and turning it into something that is very very good. Everything in the first century argued that when Paul walked in to Thessalonica, that he would be broken, that he would be timid, that he would be weak. Because every mark on his face, every mark on his body, every step and wince of pain, and every limp he used was telling a story of something that happened to him. I was beat. I was mocked. I was ridiculed. I was thrown in jail. And everyone in that city that heard me preach the gospel saw me abused. He comes into Thessalonica, and he stands in the synagogue, and he begins to teach again and again and again. But what does the text say? Does the text say he came in with timidity, that he had much fear, that he was overcome with a sense of, oh, I just don't know if this is the right thing to do? No, it says, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So how did Paul overcome the beating? How did Paul overcome shame? Did he pretend like it didn't exist? Did he say, what happened to me wasn't really a big deal. I don't really need to worry about it. I don't really need to think about it. I'm just going to push it out of my mind and act like everything's okay. And that's the advice that so many of us get. When you hurt, when someone offends you, when someone sins against you, and we go and we say, peace, peace, it's going to be okay. Just forgive and forget. Just move on. And we don't address hurt. We ask people to bury pain. Paul doesn't have boldness because he doesn't address pain. Paul has boldness because he entrusts himself to God. John gives us a brief picture of, of how this is accomplished in Revelation 12, 10, and 11. Revelation 12, 10, and 11, 
John writes and says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Why? For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Do you know what Satan does to you in the midst of shame, in the midst of sin? He becomes a personalized accuser for you. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all of your your frailty. He knows all of the ways to trip you up and to keep you down. He knows how to keep his foot on your throat and to make you think that his foot is somehow a comfort to you and a guide for you. So what is the way to overcome him? Look at what John goes on to write. The accuser has been thrown down. He has been disarmed. They conquered him, the accuser, by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. It is pleasant, it is attractive for us to think that somehow Paul came into town and he marshaled internally in himself, in his experience, the ability to stand and be bold for Jesus. And that would be wrong. If we believe that, that's wrong. Paul didn't marshal something inside himself, his can-do attitude. He didn't pull up his big boy panties. None of these things happened for Paul to be able to be bold. Where did it say he was bold? He was bold in God. Being bold in God requires you and I confess our brokenness and our weakness. None of us can be bold in the gospel of God in so much as we find our boldness in who we are. Paul finds his boldness in the blood of the Lamb. This is where he calls us to focus. And this is how he would see us go forward. So they remember Paul coming in. They can see his boldness before them. And he leads them not in this understanding that Paul is so good, great, or wonderful, but that God is a God who overcomes brokenness, that God is a God who addresses shame, that God is a God whose heart attunes to our hurt, and he longs to see us rise above our anxiety and our brokenness and our weakness and our frailty. And he can make us bold for him. Amen? Look at how he finishes. He says, I was bold for the God to declare you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, this idea that Paul came in there and he he was essentially immune to oppression is anathema. Like, for one thing, it is not common to our experience. When you encounter opposition, you can only so much be helped by saying, it's not real, it's fake, I don't feel it. Do you remember the episode of Seinfeld where, where he just kept saying serenity now, serenity now, serenity now? If you're not a Seinfeld fan, you should check this out. But saying these things and having this mantra leads to nothing except for delusion in us in this overwhelming sense of I actually am a failure. But we can have boldness in God. Boldness in God does not eliminate conflict. It doesn't. And when Paul talks about conflict, when he talks about this difficulty here that he experiences, we can see it in at least three elements. There is an idea that this conflict could be internal. Paul is a man of the first century. He recognizes that the modern conventions in his day of shame and what it's like to experience it tells him everything in him is saying, don't be bold. Can't you just be accommodating? 
Can't you just be easy to listen to? Can't you just be not a thorn in everyone else's side for a time? So there is this internal, culturally, uh, culturally relevant, culturally appropriate way he is told to be. We can see there is conflict that we experience that he experienced externally. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was locked in a stock. He was kept in prison. After three weeks of being in Thessalonica, a house church meeting was broken up. They were dragged before the magistrates once again. So he had no misgivings that to stand for Jesus would mean that he would never again be abused. But he was bold for God through the blood of the Lamb, and the externals didn't scare him. And then lastly, and I think most potently, we recognize that this conflict comes at the level of spiritual oppression. If you're not comfortable with the idea that when you become a Christian, you are a marked man or woman, that it is the mission of the legions of hell, the armies of Satan, to undermine who you are, to destroy your credibility, and to leave you wanting not to serve Jesus then likely you have characterized Satan as some figure who wears red tights with pointy uh, horns coming out of his head. Listen, the Bible tells us that Satan masquerades as an agent of light. That the things he leads you to reflect on and to be bring you some kind of comfort. They bring you some kind of healing. But the comfort they bring to you the healing they offer you is akin to giving higher and higher doses of morphine to a person laying in a hospital bed. They feel the comfort and release of it as they're slowly drifting further and further and further into the sea of oblivion. Satan's designs for you is to accuse you of things and then offer you a false gotten comfort. God's design for you, his purpose for you, is to convict you of sin and offer you healing. To address the hurt in your life and the hurt you have caused others. This isn't through an excusing of behavior, but this is through his grace and his mercy. So Paul knew what it was like standing there in Thessalonica experiencing the internal conflict, experiencing the pressure of those who would oppose him externally, experiencing the, the fiery darts of the enemy, even in all of that, to be bold. And this is what he calls us to be here in Greenville, Texas. Do you realize that the places God has you, the situations he allows you to be in, he has put you there not to be a person who is marked by shame and defeat, but to be a light unto his gospel, to be bold for him. So a great number of us work at L3 Harris. And so as you're driving onto campus and you're going in and you're parking your car and you're going in and you're sitting in your cube or wherever and you're working with this sea of men and women, you are there to be bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know why you think you're there. But the primary reason a sovereign God has placed you there is for you to be bold for his gospel. The shame you have experienced in your past, 
all the various things God has taken you through are for that moment, tomorrow morning, to be bold. We we work in banks, we are attorneys, we are school teachers, we are medical providers, we are stay-at-home moms, we are stay-at-home dads. We're in between. We're college students, we are high schoolers, middle schoolers, elementary, we are in the nursery. If you are marked by Jesus, he has not marked you for timidity. And he has not called for you to live in shame. He's called for you to experience his freedom and in freedom to boldly proclaim the gospel of God that says to everyone you encounter, like Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Jesus. Every single one of us has engaged in sin. Every single one of us is marked by sin. A great number of us in this room have received the forgiveness that comes with the blood of the Lamb. And those of us who have received Christ's forgiveness need to walk in the assurance assurance of that forgiveness. Learn to appropriate for yourself, I am forgiven when the accuser hits you with your sin. When he comes to you and says, this is the way you spoke to your wife. This is the way you spoke to your child. When you have confessed that sin to them, remind him, I have confessed that sin and I am washed and redeemed in the blood of the land. Get behind me, Satan. But for a number of us in this room and in this hearing, the story of boldness is not yours because you are not found in Jesus. The enemy wants to keep you in shame. He wants to keep you in your sin. He wants for you to believe you're too far from the gospel. You're too far from Jesus. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners, that we might be made alive in Christ. Christ himself took upon his body your shame, your guilt, so that you might come to him being forgiven, redeemed, restored, living life forever with him. There's a boldness that we can have through the forgiveness that we enjoy. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the gift of your son for his shed blood upon the cross. God, I pray that we would submit ourselves to him in all things. Father, I pray that we would not live lives marked by shame, but lives marked by boldness. So help us to be bold, to share the gospel, to live the gospel. Help us be bold in appropriating for ourselves the love of your son Jesus upon our lives. Father, we love you. We ask that you continue to guide, bless, and direct us in all things. Father, I pray that you would be stirring in the hearts and minds of the one in this room who does not know you. God, that as you are calling them, that they would find themselves submitting to you. Father, I pray that you would bolster the heart of the saved and transform the heart of the lost. We ask these things in Christ's name. 
Amen. Friends, let me ask you to stand as we enter into a time of invitation and response. That in whatever ways God is stirring and moving in your hearts, that you would be obedient to respond. If you want to speak to someone at the end of the service, we're going to have some members 